You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast, and I have Jeanne Coburn. Uh, she's an assistant professor at Worcester Polytechnic Institute uh, in the uh, biomedical engineering and collaboration with chemical engineering departments. So, Jeanne, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so tell me, tell me about your research. What does it involve? Yeah, so my research um, is focused on using biomaterials for a number of biomedical applications. So we're really a materials lab, um, kind of playing with modifications to materials or trying to make unique properties out of those materials for um, applications such as drug delivery, tissue regeneration, and in vitro disease modeling. Um, so materials okay. that are so, Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. What, what kind of materials are you looking to modify the properties of? Yeah, so I work with silk fibroin, so the same stuff your clothing might be made out of. We can use and fabricate into a variety of different materials um, that are useful for biomedical applications. I also work with chondroitin sulfate and a number of different cellulosic-type materials. So we work with bacterial-derived cellulose as well as plant-derived cellulose. Um, from plant cell cultures. What's the goal? Is it to make uh, the extracellular matrix so you can create tissues and organs? Yeah, so for some of the projects where we're thinking on the tissue regeneration or even in vitro disease modeling side, we're thinking about what kinds of modifications can we, um, can we make in our material to facilitate specific responses. So it might be just as simple as how to get cells to attach well to our materials but also how to have our materials direct a cell function or a cell fate. So the modifications might be particular kind of sugars or growth factors or things that'll direct a cell response. Um, for drug delivery applications, we think about what types of modifications will allow the drugs to interact more or less with our material, in which case then we can deliver the material with the drug and have the drug slowly release over time. Well, I guess some examples are certain drugs, they'd want to survive the stomach acid if you ingested them. So maybe you yep. need to coat them or bind them to something, right? Yep. So if we were thinking about oral delivery, we would want to be able to protect our drugs. A lot of the drug delivery that we currently think about is intratumoral. So 
Um, a big focus of my lab is oncology and oncology therapeutics, and we think about delivering our materials with drugs inside of tumors to have a locally high concentration of those drugs over a sustained period of time so that we can treat it locally and reduce the effects of the drugs systemically, but also treat it for a long, you know, that extended time when you do um, chemotherapy treatment and you um, go in, you're going to go in for multiple days. So we're trying to mimic that with our delivery systems as well as keep the concentrations high within the tumors. So what are some of the challenges? You know, the body is, well, the normal tissue in the body at least is very good. It seems that generating an immune response and surrounding foreign bodies. But what about tumor microenvironment? Yeah, so <clears throat> for for our intertumoral delivery systems, we actually don't see much capsule formation, if you will, and kind of rejection is kind of what we would think of for that material. And whether it's just there's so much local remodeling going on that you don't really see that, um, we're not really sure why. Um, I have a feeling that has a lot to do with just the microenvironment itself doesn't allow for that capsule, you know, a heavy capsule formation around our materials. It's not something, because we haven't seen it, we don't, we don't look at that aspect because we haven't actually seen it happen. But if we're going to implant these materials elsewhere in the body, you know, then we would commonly think about that capsule formation. So what are some of the things that you've you know, had to look at an engineer to get around that, to stop the body from, uh, you know, encapsulating a, a foreign drug or a foreign, uh, you know, piece of material? Yeah, so <clears throat> ways that we would do that is just kind of change how proteins might adsorb. So one of the main reasons why you get that capsule formation around a biomaterial is proteins that are all over our body, everywhere, interact with that material, and then cells now will recognize it. So ways that we would avoid that from happening is make it so that proteins don't adsorb and make it so that cells don't recognize our materials. Um, there are a number of materials that work pretty well. A lot of them are the ones that we work with for that. So um, silk will get a mild um, capsule formation, but not, not a massive one. Um, we also would be making sure that the mechanical mismatch between the material we're implanting um, and the tissue is is not mismatched. So that was one thing we consider as well as the modification. Yeah. yeah what, what's the mechanism by which the body um, creates an immune response against a, you know, a foreign body? Is it just looking for receptors on the surface of the uh, foreign material? Or like, what are the mechanisms that you've observed? Um, yeah, so there's a couple kind of key ones. One of them is that kind of the cells can attach to the material, they'll lay down a matrix, and that's more of a, an encapsulation response um, where fibroblasts will come in, they'll recognize it and encapsulate it off and kind of separate that material from the body. Um, inflammatory responses, the ones that we usually will, like my lab often thinks about, are macrophages, which will if they recognize the material, we'll start to try to phagocytose, which is essentially engulfing the material and trying to degrade it and get rid of it. So in that case, we would want to make our materials um, such that the macrophages don't recognize the material in that fashion so that they don't phagocytose it or try to take it up. Well, what do you think is the mechanism of recognition? You know, uh, have you imagined it in your mind what happens 
maybe step by step? Yeah, so I mean, the primary mechanism is those proteins will adsorb, and then you get those activation of cell receptors. So, so like macrophages would need that kind of the proteins adsorb there in order to recognize the material. First so the first step is that the the body will, or the, there'll be proteins in the body that are attempting to adhere to a yep. foreign body, and if they do that, then they act as beacons for the immune system to do something with it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's really... So, so have there been attempts to, you know, I guess the surface chemistry is super important, the smoothness or the, you know, making something uh, where nothing can adhere to it, no protein can adhere to it, maybe that would be a goal, I don't know. Yeah, so um, what we would typically try to do with that is it's called pegylation. So we have this polymer, or one of the, the main ways of addressing that anyways is peg. So it is a water-soluble polymer. You can decorate it onto the surface of material um, such that you don't get that protein adsorption. When you don't have the proteins adsorbed, your body recognizes the material less. You still have things like, well, if it's mechanic mechanically mismatched, then the body can recognize that based on mechanosensing. But one of the big things that we think about is pegylating of materials to reduce that foreign body response. You said mechanical mismatch. So can you create a surface that has a geometry where nothing will bind to it? And what's the effect of that? Um, yeah, so smoother surfaces tend to have um, um, less of a chance for things to bind to them. Rough surfaces, you have a lot of surface area when they're rougher. Um, but also, so if you think about a corner of a material, that can cause, so if you had a square, it's a simple thing to think about. If you have a square and it has that corner, that itself can cause mechanical abrasion as well. So kind of cause damage because of that corner. And then you also will have kind of a constant wounding environment. So, you know, we'll think about materials that don't have corners and that they're much, that they have a smoother surface to them to reduce kind of that abrasion, but also if the material is really stiff and then the tissue that you implant into is softer, you just have a mechanical mismatch even with a smooth surface, um, and then, you know, you have, um, yeah, that mechanical mismatch there. So there's, all right, so there's a mechanism whereby there's a matching and proteins will adhere, and that'll cause a risk immune response, but there's also a mechanism by which things won't adhere, and that will cause a different response. Yeah, so it's like a, a constant wounding type of a response that you could potentially have um, because of corners or mechanical mismatch. Um, but then there's yeah, the other protein adsorption response. So there's a, there's lots of different things that we think about when we're thinking for tissue engineering applications. You know, what are the features of the material um, just based on the structure of it that would at least reduce the chance of immune recognition or damage, which then would result in inflammation and immune recognition. Well, wouldn't that suggest that there's a, um, you know, I lack the words for it, but the body checks in with its cells. Maybe there's a temporary um, adherence of some kind of protein or signaling molecule that adheres to a normal cell. Um, it passes the check and then it, you know, it, it comes off the cell. Or maybe there are certain things that adhere to the outside of the cell that are markers specifically that would tell the body yes, this is, you know, one of your own cells, leave it alone. Yeah, so in that case, it's, it's what we would call self-recognition, where um, you have immune cells that go around the body and kind of go, is this me? Does this belong here or not? Um, and that's 
the fundamentals of immune rejection is the realization that something in the body is not meant to be there. That's usually we're thinking on the, the cells to cells. So if I put take your cells and put them in my body, they would be recognized as non-self and rejected. Um, you get a little bit mm-hmm. less of that with materials because we try to think about materials that don't have those recognition domains on them. Most materials, they're... Um, they don't yeah, they they wouldn't have those domains, but when we're thinking about implanting a material that might also have cells, again, another thing that we have to consider. Yeah. But I guess we probably don't understand the self recognition mechanism enough to emulate that. You know, why can't you have a, a foreign material that on its surface has, you know, just enough uh recognition sites or whatever they may be so that the body says, Oh, this looks like a cell, leave it alone but it still can be composed mostly of a foreign material. Yeah, so that's a good point. And something, it's one area that my lab doesn't necessarily um, focus on when we're thinking about our materials. So that'd be a really interesting kind of aspect to go down of can we recapitulate a self-response? Yeah. Yeah, and then, I mean, in studying tumors, I mean, in the, by their nature, they're doing multiple uh, multiple things to hide from the immune system. And they're, I mean, they seem to provoke... I don't know about no no immune response, but they seem to do well enough that you know they avoid that immune response. So they must be doing some kind of signaling and changes that the uh, you know the immune system leaves them alone. So I'm sure there's a lot that can be learned from that, and they're able to create microenvironments that can be radically different from what goes on in other parts of the body. Yeah, so that's a that's an aspect that my lab is working on think, of studying in the dish. Really, is how. Um, or in in culture, so not inside the body, is how cancer cells um, shut off their immune recognition and how can we make that or model that in vitro so that we could then study immuno-oncology drugs. So there's a couple very kind of well-known mechanisms, um, checkpoint inhibitors or immune checkpoint inhibitors, um, which basically will kind of shut down an immune response that cancer and those immune cells can then just reside there. Um, Sometimes those immune cells will then secrete molecules that are immunosuppressive so you continue to have this reduced immune response and immune um, lack of immune recognition of the tumors. Um, And that usually would be once that tumor has established. So initially when tumors start to establish, you have immune recognition. Eventually something kind of went wrong or the cancer cells kind of outplay the immune system. Um, and that's when those cancer cells can then survive is when they've kind of told the immune system to, to be shut down to some degree. Well, I guess the unusual thing, I may be wrong, but they're not only tricking the immune system, but they seem to do it on a local level and maybe not on a, on a systemic level, or is that wrong? Um, well, they definitely locally will in the solid tumors, right? Um, and then in metastatic sites, so if the the tumor cells are able to leave that primary site and then migrate to another area within the body called metastasis or metastasizing, um, they then now need to make this new immunoprivileged environment. Um, and whether that's because those cells already have the immune checkpoint inhibitors on them such that immune cells don't recognize them, or if they start secreting things as well within that new environment to establish themselves there. Um, 
the immune yeah, checkpoint. I just, wonder what, oh, yep. I just wonder what that tells you that they're able to do it in a local way and not a systemic way. I mean, that's even more sophisticated. You know, like let's say yeah. someone gets a you know a transplant, a kidney transplant, and you know, they have to be on immunosuppressive drugs, but those are systemic. They're mm-hmm. not local, and cancer is able to do it locally. Yeah. And in different environments, different microenvironments. You know, if you have a tumor that's in one organ and you know it metastasizes to another, now you've got two very different microenvironments, and yet somehow they're still able to trick the immune system locally in multiple different spots. Yeah. Um... That ends up getting into areas that my lab, though we're interested in studying it, we don't currently look at necessarily the biology into that level of detail. Uh, we kind of take existing biology and then try to develop it into our model. So we know we're less of the biology and more of a technology group here. No, I, yeah, I know it's, it's straying far afield from what you do, but I just think it's amazing that the level of sophistication as I think about it, that seems to be there. Yeah, and then we're always learning every day more and more about kind of how that immune rec- um, immunosuppression occurs within tumors. And it would be really interesting to be able to wrap that into or combine it with transplant therapies, um, like those drugs that you have to take orally when you do have a transplant. Can we, can we make these new environments for the transplanted organs? Or even when we're thinking about tissue engineering, what can we garner? What what can we take from what we know from cancer and apply it to tissue engineering? So what are some of the big breakthroughs that, that you've accomplished over the past few years? Yeah, so in my in my lab now, I've been here for two and a half years. Um, and one of the big things which just happened was we were able to get some of our work accepted for our drug delivery system. Um, and that was stemmed a bit from work that I had done during my postdoc. So I did I learned about silk when I worked in David Kaplan's lab at Tufts, um, and I was interested in studying the mechanism of how different drugs interact with silk. Um, established some work in that space, and then when I came to my new lab, I wanted to work with materials I had done, I had worked with during my PhD as well. So that was that chondroitin sulfate that I had mentioned earlier. Um, and looking at the structure of chondroitin sulfate and its charge, I had hypothesized that the drugs that we're interested in for chemo, for cancer treatment, would also interact with that material and that based on some of the chemistry that we can modify with it, um, we could then also tune release. Um, so that was one of our kind of newish findings is that we could play, we could tune the chemistry on chondroitin sulfate to change the release profiles for our drugs. And now we have established collaborations to study those drug delivery systems in animal models of tumors. Um, so, what, what is um, just as a refresher? What is what is uh, chondroitin sulfate do in the body? How does it? Oh uh, yeah, so chondroitin sulfate um, is the predominant extracellular matrix molecule. So what the tissue is made of um, in articular cartilage, um, it's a polysaccharide, so it's a polymer of sugars, uh, and it has a lot of negative charge groups along its backbone. Um, so the mechanism that I primarily study when I'm thinking about drug delivery or the and picking drugs to work with is I take drugs that are going to be positively charged that would likely interact with my materials and I would study them. So um, that was sort of the, the connection between my PhD work, which was in cartilage tissue engineering, that conjoint sulfate material negatively charged to my postdoc work and looking at drug interactions. Um, so kind of took a, took what I learned from another material and applied it to other 
other areas I, I had familiar familiarity to. So, so how is um how has this altered the delivery profile? Is it allowed for more time release, sustained yep. levels of drugs, or what has it done? Yep. So depending on how we do the modification or or how much. So um I'll take a step back and explain that modification first. So conjoint sulfate's water soluble, it doesn't form on its own into an insoluble material. So we add chemical groups on it that make it form into a hydrogel, which is kind of like gelatin, if you will, or jello. Um, so lots of water content, um, but it's insoluble when you put it into water. Um, so based on that chemistry and how much of that group we add, we can change the type of the properties of the gel that we get. Um, and the outcome in terms of drug delivery is that we can tune release profiles for certain drugs on the order of a couple weeks to a couple months. So we could start thinking about, well, how long do we need to have these drugs locally in the tumor environment to, to have an effect, um, right? So you put it in there, you get this initial kill, we need to kill off the rest of those cells as well. Um, do we need to do it for a few weeks or do we need to do it for multiple months? And now we can use our materials to study that. Are you able to make um, a gobstopper like uh, drug delivery where you have an outer layer of drug A and an inner layer of drug B and A gets released for a while and then when it wears away, B starts surfacing and gets released? Um, we could for sure. So um, some of the work I've done in my postdoc um, will bring some of the ideas here, but just haven't had the bandwidth to do everything, is that we do layered materials. So the inside material would have one drug, and then the coating on the outside could have a different drug. The one on the surface is going to come out faster than the one on the inside, right? So then we could have yeah, different just... delayed release because of how we design that material. Um, so we can do layering with our materials. Yeah. yeah. Maybe you could even with the um, the surface chemistry con control ratios. If you wanted A to be three to one, A, A to B ratio of three to one, perhaps the surface could be such that you know A is represented three times as much as B. So you in essence have a, uh, a delivery of three times A and one times B. Yep. Yep. So we could do that. We can add in multiple drugs. Different, so if we wanted to do it kind of from a simplistic approach, we could just have in different ratios of the drug when we load it, right? Um, but then I really like the, this idea of the layering approaches and using that as a way to change the ratios of the drug as it's coming out. Even if we had the same amount, um, if we had one that could come out faster, or A, sorry, that could come out faster than B, and then eventually we would switch and have a lot amount of B because we have very little A left. Um, so there's lots of... Lots of different things that we can tune with drug delivery systems based on loading, based on how we fabricated that material, layering, so many things that we can do. <laughs> I know, that's amazing. Yeah. What about, um, so what are we trying to, what are you trying to do specifically? Are you uh, trying to push, um, you know, a bolus of material into a tumor? And what, what would be the goal to just, I mean, what kind of, you know, actions would it take? It would try to destroy the tumor internally, radially outwards, let's say, or like what? What are some of the things that you've seen done? Yeah, so we can take a couple different approaches. One is where we would put the material inside of the tumor, um, and then it would kind of kill from the inside out. Um, another approach that we've that we've thought about and have published on is a post-resection approach, where part of the tumor is removed, and then we lay it into the tumor bed. 
Um, and then you could imagine instead of removing the tumor, we could wrap things around the tumor. Um, we have never done head-to-head -head comparisons per se of, you know, post-resection wrapping around a tumor versus intratumoral. Um, but we have done multiple, multiple papers or looked at different ways of delivering our materials, different platforms, et cetera. Um, so far, the one that works out pretty pretty well is if we just implant straight into the tumor. And I should say that all of my animal work or the work that I do is in collaboration. So my lab is very collaborative. We have a number of people all over the country that we work with with this work. We focus on the materials. And we have a number of clinicians that focus on that that end application work. Okay. So, um, what what would be the goal of um, you know seeding a tumor or putting a, a particular drug in it? It, it? Do the drugs act locally then, or they still would act systemically, or just the concentration would be super high in that one area and less everywhere else, and therefore you could have more lethality by doing that? Yep. So if we locally deliver drugs, we can get a much higher concentration than we do systemically. Um, comparing, you know, if we look at how much drug is in the tumor versus how much drug is in the bloodstream. Um, so that kind of has two effects. One is that we can get really high concentrations of tumor sites to kill off more tumor. Um, the other is reducing secondary toxicity associated with, say, chemotherapy. Um, so chemotherapy can cause a number of other organ damage, um, et cetera, that can be negative to the body. So we think about local delivery systems to reduce those toxicities. Um, the, the tumors that we primarily work with, work on, and think about in my lab is neuroblastoma, which is a pediatric tumor. So these are in, commonly found in children. It's one of the, it is the most common extracranial tumor for pediatric population. And so if we, if the drugs are delivered the standard way, which is systemically, and the child is still developing, they end up with a lot of organ problems, hearing, visual, et cetera, because those organs are still developing. Um, so we're trying to develop systems that would reduce that secondary toxicity that's more commonly associated with pediatric tumors. Um, so that's one thing. When we're just thinking about kind of the chemotherapy, the really lethal drugs, for immuno-oncology, if we did local delivery, there's still a chance that the immune cells that we would target locally can have a systemic effect via lymphatic drainage. It's something that my lab is just starting to explore. There's other labs that have, have kind of paved the way for this idea that if you locally del deliver drugs, you can systemically have an effect for the immune system. Um, but we're just starting to look into that in our lab. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, that's what, unfortunately, the tumor does. It starts out local, it appears, and then becomes systemic esh. You know, it has to use the body's systems to migrate around somehow. Diffusion, yep. lymphatic system, blood system, et cetera. So yep. it's around somehow. Yep. So can we kind of piggyback on kind of what nature already does? Yeah, it seems like that's the best way because nature is far more sophisticated than anything we've done so far. So yeah, we're, yep, we're constantly learning new things and using those new things to drive the way that we think in the lab. Yeah. How how have you you know unfortunately, you know, cancer is so adaptive. Have you witnessed in in vitro, you know, in the lab, tumors reactions to this local application of uh, you know of medicines or drugs? What do they do or how do they react? Yeah, so in in one of, again, most of the stuff is from my postdoc work, but in one of the papers, we kind of observed that if we could, 
kill off the tumor and it would have a long regression period, a few of those tumors still regrew and they're phenotypically were different. Um, and that is in the difference that was observed um, was similar to what's seen with tumors that regrow in the pediatric patient in terms of the phenotype and the aggressiveness or the potential for aggressiveness. Um, so though, I mean, we're trying to develop treatments and we don't really want to have that negative effect, I mean, there's a chance for it to happen. And now we have, at least my collaborator is thinking about using that as a model of looking at what happens, what's the aggressive state post-treatment or or something along those lines that mimic what happens in the pediatric population so that we can now develop effective treatments for these new, more aggressive tumors. Uh, that's something my collaborator yeah, what are you, at Stanford is studying. Yeah, what are you supposed to do? You've got to get rid of it. And yep. then if it, you know, sometimes it doesn't come back, sometimes it does, at least that's better than nothing. Yep. And then from there, if it does come back, now it's, you know, armored and hardened and different. Now what do you do? So it's yeah. uh, hey, here's a question. Have you observed that tum is there any predictability? You know, if you attack a certain kind of tumor and it goes away and it comes back, does it tend to come back with the same phenotypical uh, changes? Or is it, it could be anything. It's like a crapshoot and it can, it can morph in many different ways. Um, so my lab doesn't necessarily look at the, that part. That's really my collaborator's work. So I guess I can't speak much on that. It's yet to be determined. Um, but based on the paper that we have published on that, they came back phenotypically. The, just the few that did were phenotypically different and maps to a more aggressive phenotype that's observed clinically. Um, so. You couldn't predict which, I guess, I don't know if you know, but they couldn't predict which way it would go. Was there even several ways it could go and those were common? Or did it vary so much that there was really no prediction? There was there was really no prediction. Yeah, we had, there was just a few. Some of them were treated and then there were a few that were long-term regression is what we called it, but then regrew. Um, it wasn't predictable. We had some that were treated and they ended up aging, <laughs> if you will, um, but it was not necessarily a predictable. Yeah. That's amazing. Hmm. Okay. So, so what's ahead, you know, with your work now for the next few years? What are you working on specifically and, what, you know, what do you think the, the – the goals will be over the next couple of years. Yeah, so my lab, we still work with chemo, but we're really interested in getting into and have developed some work with immunotherapy and thinking kind of this local, um, uh, deliver local, think systemically, or think think local, act systemically. There we go. There's the, the phrase for it mm, for immunotherapy. <laughs> um, but also thinking about targeted therapies um, instead of using cytotoxic drugs use drugs that are kind of will attack just that tumor cell, um, and then expanding the work to the in vitro modeling, which we haven't talked too much about, um, but developing in vitro models to better study these drugs. Uh, think about microenvironments that we can model to study these drugs as well. Yeah, I'm sorry to ask you about that. If you've got maybe just a few minutes, yeah. what are some of the ways you can create in vitro environment that better mimics what goes on in the body? Like, how different is in vivo versus in vitro? I would think, unfortunately, probably radically. So how do you radically approximate that? Different. It's radically different. So um, 
kind of the initial stages for thinking about in vitro modeling with cells on a flat dish. The dish is rigid and it's flat, so the cells are in monolayer or a single layer of cells. Um, so you can already envision that that looks different. The gradients of things is different because there's not that much of a gradient, if you will, in monolayer. Um, and then there's spheroids where the cells will grow as an aggregate that can get large. Um, they get larger and larger and larger, so a little bit less controlled. Um, my lab takes a scaffolding approach. So using silk fibrolin, you can make it into a 3D material and grow cancer cells on it. Um, so that, that's the approach that we'll use, and then we can control the architecture based on the, the initial structure of that scaffold. Um, and we can grow our cancer cells, and we are establishing some really nice or finding some really nice results with those models that we're developing um, to be kind of determined <laughs> how far that can go. But um, we are finding that the growing the cells in our scaffolding system is quite different than when they're grown in 2D and then different extracellular environments. Yeah. What have you noticed when you're able to do a, uh, you know, more than one layer? Is it, does that make it difficult to observe what's going on if it's three-dimensional? Yeah, or, it does. Know, what, it, what are the pros and cons of doing this? Yeah, so it makes it more difficult when we have it in the three, the third dimension, because a lot of the optical techniques that we'll use to quickly observe how cells are responding, you can't use as efficiently, um, right? So traditional microscopy, you can look at the cells when they're in monolayer and you can see them. When they're in 3D, now they're a stack, so the microscopy gets to be a little bit more challenging. So our end outcomes can be a little bit different. And though my lab, we don't focus on, well, maybe we just make the microscopy techniques better for the 3D. Uh, I would certainly be interested in collaborating with people to, to come up with imaging technologies that would be better suited for our system so that we can do pretty much the exact same outcome, um, or at least look at the outcomes the same way. There we go. So what's... Um yeah, and I guess too the, the you know the body goes through cycles and there's all this cellular communication and maybe it, it, it's a wonder that these uh, in vitro models are approximate at all or maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, I mean they're definitely much more simplistic than to me than what you would see in vivo in the body. Um, but we do think about adding in additional cell types to make them more complicated, more complex. Um, so avenues that my lab and and other labs are interested in is looking at, well, what if we add in fibroblasts or stromal cells? What happens when we add in vascular cells? And then um, the area that we're certainly going to go or certainly interested in is what happens when we include immune cells. Um, so we can add in layers of complexity, but not get all the way, obviously, to an animal. Um, but it might be that these things, that these systems can be used as better screen drugs before we think about testing in, in animal models. I think that's one of the big the the big pros to this is that we could have better testing before we go into into animal models. Well have you done side by side where you know you have a mouse model and you're running the same kind of experiment in a you know a, a lab petri dish model and maybe you're running the same kind of experiment as well in another type of creature yeah. to see the comparisons and the evolution over time of what goes on with all three? Yep, that is definitely the direction my lab will be going. <laughs> Again, we've been here for two and a half years, so we we will be getting into that direction 
in the near future of comparing what we're developing to actually making sure that it's relevant. Um, the outcomes that we measure would actually give some relevance, um, and we would have to do those comparison studies to prove that. How do, you, how do you feel about the amount of work ahead of you? Do you feel like overwhelmed by it or excited by it, um, or what's your perception of it? Um, I feel excited about it. Um, <laughs> that's typically how I like to look at everything. We're coming up with new new technologies. We're hopefully going to develop better ways of treating patients. Um, so I find it to be very exciting. Occasionally it gets overwhelming, but, you know, we have have a really great lab. I have a number of students here that are great, a great support structure in place so that, you know, one thing is overwhelming, but other things are not, if you will. Um, I like to keep things kind of yeah. half classful <laughs> and very optimistic. No, that's great. That's great. So what's the best way for folks to learn about more about, you know, your lab and you and what you're working on and maybe contact you for collaboration? Yeah, so the best way to get in touch with me directly would be through my email. Um, I also have a website at WPI, uh, Western Polytechnic Institute, where I work. Um, but my email is jmcobun at wpi.edu, and that's probably the simplest way to get in touch with me. But to learn more about what I do, my website um, on our institution, at our institution here. Yeah, yeah those URLs usually are huge, so best way to do yeah, it is go to so I can't ramble off the URL, but I can provide the link yeah. so it can be posted with the podcast for sure. Yeah, we'll do that, and then folks can go to Worcester Polytech and search on your name, and they can navigate to you that way. So that'll work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, great. This has been great, John, and thank you so much for coming. It's been a really yeah. good podcast. Very interesting. Yeah, thank you for having me. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.